Section 2, page 33 of The Bluest Eye. Title, Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. It is very pretty, pretty, pretty pea. There is an abandoned store on the southeast corner of Broadway and 35th Street in Lorain, Ohio. It does not recede into its background of lead and sky, nor harmonize with the gray frame houses and black telephone poles around it. Rather, it foists itself on the eye of the passerby in a manner that is both irritating and melancholy. Visitors who drive to this tiny town wonder why it has not been torn down, while pedestrians who are residents of the neighborhood simply look away when they pass it. At one time, when the building housed the pizza parlor, people saw only slow-footed teenaged boys huddled about the corner. These young boys met there to feel their groins, smoke cigarettes, and plan mild outrages. The smoke from their cigarettes they inhaled deeply, forcing it to fill their lungs, their hearts, their thighs, and keep at bay the shiveriness, the energy of their youth. They moved slowly, laughed slowly, but flicked the ashes from their cigarettes too quickly, too often, and exposed themselves to those who were interested as novices to the habit. But long before the sound of their lowing and the sight of their preening, the building was leased to a Hungarian baker, modestly famous for his brioche and poppy seed rolls. Earlier than that, there was a real estate office there, and even before that, some gypsies used it as a base of operations. The gypsy family gave the large plate glass window as much distinction and character as it ever had. The girls of the family took turns sitting between yards of velvet draperies and oriental rugs hanging at the windows. They looked out and occasionally smiled or winked or beckoned, only occasionally. Mostly, they looked their elaborate dresses, long-sleeved and long-skirted, hiding the nakedness that stood in their eyes. So fluid has the population in that area been that probably no one remembers longer, longer ago, before the time of the gypsies and the time of the teen-agers when the Breedloves lived there, nestled together in the storefront, festering together in the debris of a realtor's whim. They slipped in and out of the box of peeling gray, making no stir in the neighborhood, no sound in the labor force, and no wave in the mayor's office. Each member of the family in his own cell of consciousness, each making his own patchwork quilt of reality, collecting fragments of experience here, pieces of information there. From the tiny impressions gleaned from one another, they created a sense of belonging and tried to make do with the way they found each other. The plan of the living quarters was as unimaginative as a first-generation Greek landlord could contrive it to be. The large store area was partitioned into two rooms by beaverwood planks that did not reach to the ceiling. There was a living room, which the family called the front room, and the bedroom, where all the living was done. In front of the room, in the front room, excuse me, were two sofas, an upright piano, and a tiny artificial Christmas tree, which had been there, decorated and dust-laden for two years. The bedroom had three beds, a narrow iron bed for Sammy, 14 years old, another for Pocola, 11 years old, and a double bed for Charlie, and Mrs. Breedlove. In the, center, in the center of the bedroom, for the even distribution of heat, stood a coal stove. Trunks, chairs, a small end table, and a cardboard wardrobe closet were placed around the walls. The kitchen was in the back of this apartment, a separate room. There were no bath facilities, only a toilet bowl, inaccessible to the eye, if not the ear, of the tenant. There is nothing more to say about the furnishings. They were anything but describable, having been conceived, manufactured, 
shipped and sold in various states of thoughtlessness, greed, and indifference. The furniture had aged without ever having become familiar. People had owned it, but never known it. No one had lost a penny or a brooch under the cushions of either sofa and remembered the place and time of the loss or the finding. No one had clucked and said, but I had it just a minute ago. I was sitting right there talking to, or here it is. It must have slipped down while I was feeding the baby. No one had given birth in one of the beds or remembered with fondness the peeling paint places because that's what the baby, when he learned to pull himself up, used to pick loose. No thrifty child had tucked a wad of gum under the table. No happy drunk, a friend of the family with a fat neck, unmarried, you know, but God how he eats, had sat at the piano and played, You Are My Sunshine. No young girl had stared at the tiny Christmas tree and remembered when she had decorated it or wondered if that blue ball was going to hold, or if he would ever come back to see it. There were no memories among those pieces, certainly no memories to be cherished. Occasionally, an item provoked a physical reaction, an increase of acid irritation in the upper intestinal tract, a light flush of perspiration at the back of the neck, as circumstances surrounding the piece of furniture were recalled. The sofa, for example. It had been purchased new, but the fabric had split straight across the back by the time it was delivered. The store would not take the responsibility. Look here, buddy. It was okay when I put it on the truck. The store can't do anything about it once it's on the truck. Listerine and lucky strike breath. But I don't want no tour cow shipping is bought new pleading eyes, and tightening testicles. Tough shit, buddy. Your tough shit. You could hate a sofa, of course. That is, if you could hate a sofa. But it didn't matter. You still had to get together $4.80 a month. If you had to pay $4.80 a month for a sofa that started off split, no good, and humiliating... You couldn't take any joy in owning it. And the joylessness stank, pervading everything. The stink of it kept you from painting the beaver board walls, from getting a matching piece of material for the chair, even from sewing up the split, which became a gash, which became a gaping chasm that exposed the cheap frame and cheaper upholstery. It withheld the refreshment and asleep slept on it, it imposed a furtiveness on the loving done on it. Like a sore tooth that is not content to throb in isolation, but must diffuse its own pain to other parts of the body, making breathing difficult, vision limited, nerves unsettled. So a hated piece of furniture produces, produces a fretful malaise that asserts itself throughout the house and limits the delight of things not related to it. The only thing living, the only living thing in the Breedlove's house was the coal stove, which lived independently of everything and everyone, its fire being out, banked, or up at its own discretion, in spite of the fact that the family fed it and knew all the details of its regimen. Sprinkle, do not dump, not too much. The fire seemed to live, go down, or die according to its own schemata. In the morning, however, it always saw fit to die. Page 38. Here's the family, mother, father, Dick, and Jane. They live in the green and white house. They are very... Hmm. The Breedloves did not live in a storefront because they were having temporary difficulty adjusting to the cutbacks at the plant. They lived there because they were poor and black, and they stayed there because they believed they were ugly. And, they, and although their poverty was traditional and stultifying, it was not unique. 
but their ugliness was unique. No one could have convinced them that they were not relentlessly and aggressively ugly. Except for the father, Charlie, whose ugliness, the result of despair, dissipation, and violence directed toward petty things and weak people, was behavior. The rest of the family, Mrs. Breedlove, Sammy Breedlove, and Pecola Breedlove, wore their ugliness, put it on, so to speak, although it did not belong to them. The eyes, the small eyes set closely together under narrow foreheads, the low, irregular hairlines, which seemed even more irregular in contrast to the straight, heavy eyebrows which nearly met, keen but crooked noses with insolent nostrils, they had high cheekbones and their ears torn, turned forward. Shapely lips, which called attention not to themselves, but to the rest of the face. You looked at them and wondered why they were so ugly. You looked closely and could not find the source. Then you realized that it came from conviction, their conviction. It was as though some mysterious, all-knowing master had given each one a cloak of ugliness to wear, and they had accepted it without question. The master had said, You are ugly people. They had looked about themselves and saw nothing to contradict the statement. Saw, in fact, support for it leaning at them from every billboard, every movie, every glance. Yes, they had said, You are right. And they took the ugliness in their hands, threw it as a mantle over them, and went about the world with it, dealing with it each according to his way. Mrs. Breedlove handled hers as an actor does a prop, for the articulation of character, for support of a role she frequently imagined was hers, martyrdom. Sammy used his as a weapon to cause others pain. He adjusted his behavior to it, chose his companions on the basis of it, people who could be fascinated, even intimidated by it. And Pecola? She hid behind hers, concealed, veiled, eclipsed, peeping out from behind the shroud very seldom and then only to yearn for the return of her mask. This family, on a Saturday morning in October, began one by one, to stir out of their dreams of affluence and vengeance into the anonymous misery of their storefront. Mrs. Breedlove slipped noiselessly out of bed, put a sweater on over her nightgown, which was really an old daydress, and walked toward the kitchen. Her one good foot made hard, bony sounds. The twisted one whispered on the linoleum. In the kitchen, she made noises with doors, faucets, and pans. The noises were hollow, but the threats they implied were not. Pecola opened her eyes and lay staring at the dead coal stove. Charlie mumbled, thrashed about in the bed for a minute, and then was quiet. Even from where Pecola lay, she could smell Charlie's whiskey. The noises in the kitchen became louder and less hollow. There was direction and purpose in Miss Breedlove's movement, movement. They had nothing to do with the preparation of breakfast. This awareness, supported by ample evidence from the past, made Pecola tighten her stomach muscles and ration her breath. Charlie had come home drunk. Unfortunately, he had been too drunk to quarrel so the whole business would have to erupt this morning. Because it had not taken place immediately, the oncoming fight would lack spontaneity. It would be calculated, uninspired, and deadly. <clears throat> Mrs. Breedlove came swiftly into the room and stood at the foot of the bed where Charlie lay. I need some coal in this house. Charlie did not move. Hear me? 
Miss Breedlove jabbed Charlie's foot. Charlie opened his eyes slowly. They were red and menacing. With no exception, Charlie had the meanest eyes in town. Oh, woman! I said I need some coal. It's as cold as a witch's tit in this house. Your whiskey ass wouldn't feel hellfire, but I'm cold. I got to do a lot of things, but I ain't got to freeze. Leave me alone. Not until you get me some coal. If you working like a mule, don't give me the right to be warm. What am I doing it for? You sure ain't bringing in nothing. If it was left up to you, we'd all be dead. Her voice was like an earache in the brain. If you think I'm going to wade out in the cold and get it myself, you better think again. I don't give a shit how you get it. A bubble of violence burst in his throat. You going to get your drunk self out the bed and get me some coal or not? Silence. Charlie! Silence. Don't try me this morning, man. You say one more word and I'll split you open. Silence. All right, all right. But if I sneeze once, just once, God help your butt. Sammy was awake now, too, but pretending to be asleep. Pacola still had held her stomach muscles taut and conserved her breath. They all knew that Mrs. Breedlove could have, would have, and had gotten coal from the shed, or that Sammy or Pacola could be directed to get it. But the unquarreled evening hung like the first note of a dirge in sullenly expectant air. An escapade of drunkenness, no matter how routine, had its own ceremonial clothes. The tiny, undistinguished days that Miss Breedlove lived were identified, grouped, and classed by these quarrels. They gave substance to the minutes and hours otherwise dim and unrecalled. They relieved the tiresomeness of poverty, gave grandeur to the dead rooms. In these violent breaks in routine that were themselves routine, she could display the style and imagination of what she believed to be her own true self. To deprive her of these fights was to deprive her of all the zest and reasonableness of life. Charlie, by his habitual drunkenness and honoriness, provided them both with the material they needed to make their lives tolerable. Mrs. Breedlove considered herself an upright and Christian woman, burdened with a no-count man whom God wanted her to punish. Charlie was beyond redemption, of course, and redemption was hardly the point. Mrs. Breedlove was not interested in Christ the Redeemer, but rather Christ the Judge. Often she could be heard discoursing with Jesus about Charlie, pleading with him to help her. Strike the bastard down from his pinochle of pride. And once, when a drunken jester catapulted Charlie into the red-hot stove, she screamed, Get him, Jesus! Get him! If Charlie had stopped drinking, she would never have forgiven Jesus. She needed Charlie's sins desperately. The lower he sank, the wilder and more responsible he became, the more splendid she and her task became. In the name of Jesus. No less did Charlie need her. She was one of the few things abhorrent to him that he could touch and therefore hurt. He poured out on her the sum of all his inarticulate fury and aborted desires. Hating her, he could leave himself intact. When he was still very young, Charlie had been surprised in some bushes by two white men while he was newly but earnestly engaged in eliciting sexual pleasure from a little country girl. The men had shown a flashlight right on his behind. He had stopped, terrified. They chuckled. The beam of the flashlight did not move. Go on, they said. Go on and finish. And nigger, make it good. The flashlight did not move. For some reason, Charlie had not hated the white men. He hated, despised the girl. Even a half-remembrance of this episode along with myriad other humiliations, defeats, and emasculations, 
could stir in him into flights of depravity to surprise himself, but only himself. Somehow he could not astound. He could only be astounded. So he gave that up, too. Charlie and Miss Breedlove fought each other with a darkly brutal formalism that was paralleled only by their lovemaking. Tacitly, they had agreed not to kill each other. He fought her the way a coward fights a man, with feet, the palms of his hands, and teeth. She, in turn, fought back in a purely feminine way, with frying pans and pokers, and occasionally a flat iron would sail toward his head. They did not talk, groan, or curse during these beatings. There was only the muted sound of falling things and flesh, unsurprised flesh. There was a difference in the reaction of the children to these battles. Sammy cursed for a while, or left the house, or threw himself into the fray. He was known, by the time he was 14, to have run away from home no less than 27 times. Once he got to Buffalo and stayed three months. His returns, whether by force or circumstance, were sullen. Pacola, on the other hand, restricted by youth and sex, experimented with methods of endurance. Though the methods varied, the pain was as consistent as it was deep. She struggled between an overwhelming desire that one could kill the other and a profound wish that she herself could die. Now she was whispering, Don't, Mrs. Breedlove. Don't. Pacola, like Sammy and Charlie, always called her mother, Mrs. Breedlove. Don't, Mrs. Breedlove. Don't. But Mrs. Breedlove did. By the grace, no doubt, of God, Mrs. Breedlove sneezed. Just once. She ran into the bedroom with a dishpan full of cold water and threw it in Charlie's face. He sat up, choking and spitting. Naked and ashen, he leaped from the bed and with a flying tackle grabbed his wife around the waist and they hit the floor. Charlie picked her up and knocked her down with the back of his hand. She fell in a sitting position her back supported by Sammy's bed frame. She had not let go of the dishpan and began to hit at Charlie's thighs and groin with it. He put his foot in her chest and she dropped the pan. Dropping to his knee, he struck her several times in the face. And she might have succumbed early had he not hit his hand against the metal bed frame when his wife ducked. Mrs. Breedlove took advantage of this momentary suspension of blows and slipped out of his reach. Sammy, who had watched in silence their struggling at his bedside, suddenly began to hit his father about the head with both fists, shouting, You naked fuck! Over and over and over. Mrs. Breedlove, having snatched up the round, flat stove lid, ran tippy-toe to Charlie as he was pulling himself up from his knees and struck him two blows, knocking him right back into the senselessness out of which she had provoked him. Panting, she threw a quilt over him and let him lie. Sammy screamed, Kill him! Kill him! Mrs. Breedlove looked at Sammy with surprise. Cut out that noise, boy! She put the stove lid back in place and walked toward the kitchen. At the doorway, she paused long enough to say to her son, Get up from there anyhow. I need some coal." Letting herself breathe easy now, Pacola covered her head with the quilt. The sick feeling, which she had tried to prevent by holding in her stomach, came quickly in spite of her precaution. There surged in her the desire to heave, but as always, she knew she would not. Please, God, she whispered into the palm of her hand, please make me disappear. She squeezed, her eyes shut. Little parts of her body faded away. Now slowly, now with a rush, slowly again, her fingers went, one by one, 
Then her arms disappeared all the way to the elbow. Her feet now. Yes, that was good. The legs all at once. It was hardest above the thighs. She had to be real still and pull. Her stomach would not go. But finally it, too, went away. Then her chest. Her neck. The face was hard, too. Almost done. Almost. Only her tight, tight eyes were left. They were always left. Try as she might, she could never get her eyes to disappear. So what was the point? They were everything. Everything was there, in them. All of those pictures, all of those faces. She had long ago given up the idea of running to see new pictures, new faces, as Sammy had done so often. He never took her, and he never thought about his going ahead of time, so it was never planned. It wouldn't have worked anyway. As long as she looked the way she did, as long as she was ugly, she would have to stay with these people. Somehow, she belonged to them. Long hours, she sat looking in the mirror, trying to discover the secret of the ugliness. The ugliness that made her ignored or despised at school by teachers and classmates alike. She was the only member of her class who sat alone at a double desk. The first letter of her last name forced her to sit in the front of the room always. But what about Marie Apollonier? Marie was in front of her, but she shared a desk with Luke Angelino. Her teachers had always treated her this way. They tried never to glance at her and called on her only when everyone was required to respond. She also knew that when one of the girls at school wanted to be particularly insulting to a boy or wanted to get an immediate response from him, she could say, Bobby loves Picola Breedlove. Bobby loves Picola Breedlove. And never fail to get peals of laughter from those in earshot and mock and anger from the accused. It had occurred to a Picola some time ago that if her eyes, those eyes that held the pictures, and knew the sights, if those eyes of hers were different, that is to say, beautiful, she herself would be different. Her teeth were good, and at least her nose was not big and flat like some of those who were thought so cute. If she looked different, beautiful, maybe Charlie would be different, and Mrs. Breedlove too. Maybe they'd say, why, look at pretty-eyed Pecola. We mustn't do bad things in front of those pretty eyes. Pretty eyes, pretty blue eyes, big blue pretty eyes. Run, Jip, run. Jip runs, Alice runs. Alice has blue eyes. Jerry has blue eyes. Jerry runs. Alice runs. They run with their blue eyes. Four blue eyes. Four pretty blue eyes. Blue sky eyes. Blue like Mrs. Forrest's blue blouse eyes. Morning glory blue eyes. Alice and Jerry. Blue storybook eyes. Each night, without fail, she prayed for blue eyes. Fervently for a year she had prayed. Although somewhat discouraged, she was not without hope. To have something as wonderful as that happen would take a long, long time. Thrown in this way into the binding conviction that only a miracle could relieve her, she would never know her beauty. She would see only what there was to see the eyes of other people. She walks down Garden Avenue to a small grocery store which sells penny candy. Three pennies are in her shoe, slipping back and forth between the sock and the inner sole. With each step, she feels the painful press of the coins against her foot, a sweet, endurable, even cherished irritation full of promise and delicate security. There's plenty of time to consider what to buy. Now, however, she moves down an avenue gently buffeted by the familiar and therefore loved images. The dandelions at the base of the telephone pole. Why, she wonders, do people call them weeds? She thought they were pretty. 
for grown-ups say, Miss Dunian keeps her yard so nice, not a dandelion anywhere. Hunky women in black babushkas go into the fields with baskets to pull them up, but they do not want the yellow head, only the jagged leaves. They make dandelion soup, dandelion wine. Nobody loves the head of a dandelion, maybe because they are so many, strong, and soon. There was a sidewalk crack-shaped like a Y, and the other one that lifted the concrete up from the dirt floor. Frequently, her sloughing step had made her trip over that one. Skates would go well over this sidewalk. Old it was and smooth. It made the wheels glide evenly with a mild whir. The newly paved walks were bumpy and uncomfortable, and the sound of skate wheels on new walks was grating. These and other inanimate things she was experienced, she saw and experienced. They were real to her. She knew them. They were the codes and the touchstones of the world, capable of translating and posturing. Excuse me, capable of translation and possession. She owned the crack that made her stumble. She owned the clumps of dandelions whose white heads last fall she had blown away whose yellow heads this fall she peered into, and owning them made her part of the world, and she would part of her. She climbs forward and steps to the door of the Yakubuski's fresh veggie meat and sun-dry store. A bell tinkles as she opens it. Standing before the counter, she looks at the array of candies. All Mary Janes, she decides. Three for a penny. The resistant sweetness that breaks open at last to deliver peanut butter. The oil and salt which complement the sweet pull of caramel. A peal of anticipation unsettles her stomach. She pulls off her shoe and takes out the three pennies. The gray head of Mr. Yakubowski looms up over the counter. He urges his eyes out of his thoughts to encounter her. Blue eyes. Blear dropped. Slowly, like Indian summer moving imperceptibly toward fall, he looks toward her. Somewhere between retina and object, between vision and view, his eyes draw back, hesitate, and hover. At some fixed point in time and space, he senses that he need not waste the effort of a glance. He does not see her, because for him there is nothing to see. How can a 52-year-old white immigrant storekeeper with the taste of potatoes and beer in his mouth his mind honed on the doe-eyed Virgin Mary, his sensibilities blunted by a permanent awareness of loss, see a little black girl. Nothing in his life even suggested that the feat was possible, not to say desirable or necessary. Yeah. She looks up at him and sees the vacuum where curiosity ought to lodge and something more the total absence of human recognition, the glazed separateness. She does not know what keeps his glance suspended, perhaps because he is grown or a man and she is a little girl. But she has seen interest, disgust, even anger in grown male eyes. Yet this vacuum is now, is not new to her. It has an edge. Somewhere in the bottom lid is the distaste. She has seen it lurking in the eyes of all white people. So the distaste 
must be for her, for her blackness. All things in her are flux and anticipation, but her blackness is static and dread. It is the blackness that accounts for her, that creates the vacuum edged with distaste and white eyes. She points her finger at the Mary Janes. A little black shaft of finger, its tip pressed on the display window. The quietly inoffensive assertion of a black child's attempt to communicate with a white adult. Them. The word is more sigh than sense. What? These? These? Slim and impatient mingle in his voice. She shakes her head, her fingertip fixed on the spot which, in her view, at any rate, identifies the Mary Jane. He cannot see her view. The angle of his vision, the slant of her finger, makes it incomprehensible to him. His lumpy red hand plops around in the glass casing like the agitated head of chicken outraged by the loss of its body. Christ, can't you talk? His fingers brush the Mary Jane. She nods. Well, why don't you say so? One? How many? Pacola unfolds her fist, showing the three pennies. He scoots three Mary Janes toward her, three rectangles in each packet. She holds the money toward him. He hesitates, not wanting to touch her hand. She does not know how to move the finger of her right hand from the display counter or how to get the coins out of her left hand. Finally, he reaches over and takes the pennies from her hand. His nails graze her damp palm. Outside, Pecola feels the inexplicable shame ebb. Dandelions. A dart of affection leaps out from her to them. But they do not look at her and do not send love back. She thinks they are ugly. They are weeds. Preoccupied with that revelation, she trips on the sidewalk crack. Anger stirs and wakes in her. It opens its mouth and like a hot mouthed puppy laps up the dredges of her shame. Anger is better. There is a sense of being in anger. A reality and presence and awareness of worth it is a lovely surging. Her thoughts fall back to Mr. Yakubowski's eyes, his flimmy voice. The anger will not hold. The puppy is too easily surfeited. Its thirst too quickly quenched. It sleeps. The shame wells up again, its muddy rivulet seeping into her eyes. What to do before the tears come? She remembers the Mary Jane. James. Each pale yellow wrapper has a picture on it. A picture of little Mary Jane, for whom the candy is named. Smiling white face. Blonde hair in a gentle disarray. Blue eyes looking at her out of a world of clean comfort. The eyes are petulant, mischievous. To Pecola, they are simply pretty. She eats the candy, and its sweetness is good. To ear the candy is somehow to eat the eyes. Eat Mary Jane. Love Mary Jane. Be Mary Jane. Three pennies had bought her nine lovely orgasms with Mary Jane. Lovely Mary Jane, for whom a candy is named. Three whores lived in the apartment above the Breedlove storefront, China, Poland, and Miss Marie. Pecola loved them, visited them, and ran their errands. They, in turn, did not despise her. On an October morning, the morning of the stove lid, stove -lid triumph, Pecola climbed the stairs to their apartment. Even before the door was opened to her tap and she could hear Poland singing, and her voice sweet and hard like new strawberries. I got blues in my wheelbarrow, blues up on the shelf. 
I got blues in my meal barrel, blues up on the shelf, blues in my bedroom because I'm sleeping by myself. Hi, Dumplin', where are your socks? Marie seldom called Piccola the same thing twice, but invariably her epithets were found were fond ones chosen from menus and dishes that were forever uppermost in her mind. Hello, Miss Marie. Hello, Miss China. Hello, Miss Poland. You heard me. Wear your socks. You as bare-legged as a yard dog. I couldn't find any. Couldn't find any? Must be something in your house that loves socks. China chuckled. Whenever something was missing, Marie attributed its disappearance to something in the house that loved it. There's something in this house that loves bras ears, she would say with alarm. Poland and China were getting ready for the evening. Poland, forever ironing, forever singing. China, sitting on a pale green kitchen chair, forever and forever curling her hair. Marie never got ready. The women were friendly, but slow to begin talk. Piccola always took the initiative with Marie, who, once inspired, was difficult to stop. How come you got so many boyfriends, Miss Marie? Boyfriends? Boyfriends? Chillin', I ain't seen a boy since 19 and 27. You didn't see none, then? China stuck the hot curlers into a tin of new Nile hairdressing. The oil hissed at the touch of the hot metal. How come, Miss Marie? Piccola insisted. How come what? How come I ain't seen a boy since 19 and 27? Because there ain't been no boys since then. That's when they stopped. Folks started getting born old. You mean that's when you got old, China said. I ain't never got old, just fat. Same thing. You think because you skinny, folks think you young? You'd make a haint by a girdle. And you look like the north side of a southbound mule. All I know is, them bandy little legs of yours is every bit as old as mine. Don't worry about my bandy legs. That's the first thing they push aside. All three of the women laughed. Marie threw back her head. From deep inside, her laughter came like the sound of many rivers, freely, deeply, muddily heading for the room of an open sea. China giggled spastically. Each gasp seemed to be yanked out of her by an unseen hand jerking an unseen string. Poland, who seldom spoke unless she was drunk, laughed without sound. When she was sober, she hummed mostly or chanted blues songs, of which she knew many. Pocola fingered the fringe of a scarf that lay on the back of the sofa. I never seen nobody with as many boyfriends as you got, Miss Marie. How come they all love you? Marie opened a bottle of root beer. What else they gonna do? They know I'm rich and good looking. They wants to put their toes in my curly hair and get at my money. You rich, Miss Marie? Pudding? I got money's many. Where you get it from? You don't do no work. Yeah, said China. Where you get it from? Hoover give it to me. I did him a favor once. For the F-B-N-I. What'd you do? I did him a favor. They wanted to catch this crook, you see. Name of Johnny. He was as low down as they come. We know that. China arranged a curl. The F-B-N-I wanted him bad. He killed more people than T-B. And if you crossed him, whoo, Jesus. He'd run you as long as there was ground. Well... I was little and cute then, no more than 90 pounds soaking wet. You ain't never been soaking wet, China said. Well, you ain't never been dry. Shut up, let me tell you, sweetening. To tell the truth, I was the only one who could handle him. He'd go out and rob a bank or kill some people, and I'd say to him soft like, Johnny, you shouldn't do that. And he'd say he just had to bring me pretty things. Lacy drawers and all. And every Saturday, we'd get a case of beer and fry up some fish. We'd fry it in the meal and egg batter. You know, 
And when it was all brown and crisp, not hard, though, we'd break open that cold beer. Marie's eyes went soft as the memory of just such a meal sometimes, somewhere, transfixed her. All her stories were subject to breaking down at descriptions of food. Pecola saw Marie's teeth settling down into the back of a crisp sea bass. Saw the fat fingers putting back into her mouth tiny flakes of white, hot meat that had escaped from her lips. She heard the hot meat that had escaped. She heard the pop of the beer bottle cap. Smelled the acridness of the first stream of vapor. Felt the cold beeriness hit the tongue. She ended the daydream long before Marie. But what about the money? She asked. China hooted. She's making like she's the lady in red that told on Dillinger. Dillinger wouldn't have come near you less than he was going hunting in Africa, shoot you for a hippo. Well, this hippo had a ball back in Chicago. Woo, Jesus, 99. How come you always say woo, Jesus, and a number? Pecola had long wanted to know. Because my mama taught me never to cuss. Did she teach you not to drop your drawers, China asked. Didn't have none, said Marie. Never saw a pair of drawers till I was 15 when I left Jackson and was doing day work in Cincinnati. My white lady gave me some old ones of hers. I thought they were some kind of stocking cap. I put it on my head when I dusted. When she saw me, she liked a fell out. You must have been one dumb somebody, China lit a cigarette and cooled her irons. How'd I know, Marie paused. And what's the use of putting on something you got to keep taking off all the time? Dewey never let me keep them on long enough to get used to them. Dewey who? This was a somebody new to Pecola. Dewey who? Chicken, you never heard me tell you about Dewey? Marie was shocked by her negligence. No, ma'am. Oh, honey, you've missed half your life. Woo, Jesus, 195. You talking about smooth? I met him when I was 14. We ran away and lived together like married for three years. You know all those clinker tops you see running up here? Fifty of them in a bow wouldn't make a Dewey Prince ankle bone. Oh, Lord, how that man loved me. China arranged a finger full of hair into a bang effect. Then why he left you to sell tail? Girl, when I found out I could sell it, that somebody would pay cold cash for it, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Poland began to laugh, soundlessly. Me too. My auntie whipped me good that first time when I told her I didn't get no money. I said, money? For what? He didn't owe me nothing. She said, the hell he didn't. They all dissolved in laughter. Three merry gargoyles. Three merry harridans. Amused by a long ago time of ignorance. They did not belong to those generations of prostitutes created in novels with great and generous hearts dedicated because of the horror of circumstances to ameliorating the luckless, barren life of men taking money incidentally and humbly for their understanding. Nor were they from that sensitive breed of young girl gone wrong at the hands of fate, forced to cultivate an outward brittleness in order to protect her springtime from further shock but knowing full well she was cut out for better things and could make the right man happy. Neither were they the sloppy, inadequate whores who, unable to make a living at it alone, turned to drug consumption and traffic or pimps to help complete their scheme of self-destruction, avoiding suicide only to punish the memory of some absent father or to sustain the misery of some silent mother. Except for Marie's fabled love for Dewey Prince, these women hated men, all men, without shame, apology, or discrimination. They abused their visitors with a scorn grown mechanical from use. Black men, white men, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Jews, Poles, whatever, all were inadequate and weak. All came under the, their jaundiced eyes and were the recipients of their disinterested wrath. They took delight in cheating them. On one occasion, the town well knew they lured a Jew up the stairs, pounced on him, all three, held him up by the heels, shook everything out of his pants pockets and threw him out the window. Neither did they have respect for women who, although not their colleagues, so to speak, 
nevertheless deceived their husbands regularly or irregularly, it made no difference. Sugar-coated whores, they called them, and did not yearn to be in their shoes. Their only respect was for what they would have described as good Christian colored women. The woman whose reputation was spotless and who tended to her family, who didn't drink or smoke or run around. These women had their undying, if covert, affection. They would sleep with their husbands and take their money, but always with a vengeance. Nor were they protective and solicitous of youthful innocence. They looked back on their own youth as a period of ignorance and regretted that they had not made more of it. They were not young girls in whores' clothing or whores regretting their loss of innocence. They were whores in whores' clothing, whores who had never been young and had no word for innocence. With Pecola, they were as free as they were with each other. Marie concocted stories for her because she was a child, but the stories were breezy and rough. If Pecola had announced her intention to live the life they did, they would have not tried. They would have not tried to dissuade her or voiced any alarm. You and Dewey Prince have any children, Miss Marie? Yeah, yeah, we had some. Marie fidgeted. She pulled a bobby pin from her hair and began to pick her teeth. That meant she didn't want to talk anymore. Pecola went to the window and looked down at the empty street. A tuft of grass had forced its way up through a crack in the sidewalk, only to meet a raw October wind. She thought of Dewey Prince and how he loved Miss Marie. What did love feel like, she wondered. How do grown-ups act when they love each other? Eat fish together? Into her eyes came the picture of Charlie and Mrs. Breedlove in bed, he making sounds as though he were in pain, as though something had him by the throat and wouldn't let go. Terrible as his noises were, they were not nearly as bad as the no noise at all from her mother. It was as though she was not even there. Maybe that was love. Choking sounds and silence. Turning her eyes from the window, Pecola looked at the women, China had changed her mind about the bangs and was arranging a small but sturdy pompadour. She was adept at she was adept in creating any number of hairstyles, but each one left her with a pinched and harassed look. Then she applied makeup heavily. Now she gave herself surprised eyebrows and a cupid bow mouth. Later she would make oriental eyebrows and an evilly slashed mouth. Poland, in her sweet strawberry voice, began another song. I know a boy who is sky soft brown. I know a boy who is sky soft brown. The dirt leaves for joy when his feet touch the ground. His strut is a peacock, his eyes burning brass. His smile is soft from syrup dripping slow sweet to the last. I know a boy who is sky soft brown. Marie sat shelling peanuts and popping them into her mouth. Pecola looked and looked at the women. Were they real? Marie belched softly, purringly, lovingly.